0: Welcome everybody back, Steve with Sensitive Daily, coming at you with our latest edition with Michael Graney. This time, episode 12 of the Act of Social Justice, as you all see, we've moved, so this is a different area of room I'm in right now, and I'm not acting for the Dark Knight right now, I know it's dark, this looks like the Batman trailer, you can't see anything. So I'm working on the lightning. This is the first time doing this. I just got the computer hooked up uh, probably a day or two ago. So anyways, enough about me. You're not going to see me for the rest of the time. Here's Michael. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And I'm, I said, we can't see you and I can't see anything. So that uh, makes us <laughs> even, I guess. Which, which may be appropriate for this because there's a lot of people who may not see the, the subject of this particular video. This is probably the most difficult subject we've covered to date. Uh, It is extremely complex and it is, in my opinion, the reason why so many people confuse Catholic social teaching with socialism. It's the act of social justice. And it's a highly technical discussion, so get your hip waders on. I'll try to be as thorough as I can, but also as clear as I can, but since it is a concept outside of most people's operating paradigm. I really don't like the word paradigm, but in this case, it actually fits. It may it, It's going to be hard to grasp. And even though I say this from the beginning that this is a very difficult subject and it's very easy to misunderstand, there's going to be a lot of people who view the video who may fall into the trap of misunderstanding it. Even though you're told you're going to misunderstand it, so be very careful. Because if there's something that sounds different or odd or confusing, that does not mean it's wrong. It just means it's different from the way you may be operating at the moment. That's the Father William Faree, who was probably the world's leading expert on the social doctrine of Pius XI, and who was a co-founder of the Center for Economic and Social Justice, that I'm for which I'm director of research, kept stressing this. He was in academia. He was in church politics. He was uh, in Rome. He w- And he said, the biggest hurdle to understanding the Cap- Catholic social teaching is trying to understand what Pius XI was talking about with the act of social justice, which was, in fact, Father Faree's doctoral thesis, 1942. Uh, and I- I'm going to I put a commercial in here, sort of. You can get free downloadable copies of Father Faree's doctoral thesis, The Act of Social Justice. And if you read it, be prepared for a difficult time. I had to read it about half a dozen times before I started to grasp it. It's very difficult, especially to a culture that has not been grounded in Thomist philosophy. The real thing from Aristotle, not the Neo Platonist. You know, pseudo Thomism that we get mostly today. And also, much more valuable is the pamphlet he wrote in 1948, which was a sort of condensation and adaptation of his of Pius XI social doctrine for high school students. So it's probably graduate level today. It's called Introduction to Social Justice. We call it a pamphlet, but it's really a very short book, it's about 60 or 70 pages. So it's even that is not something that's easy to grasp. Even though I, I think I had a copy of the first edition here someplace, and it, it looks like a little tiny pamphlet. You say, oh, I can get through that. But then you look at it it's practically micro print. I thought, gee, thanks. Uh, Paulus Press 1948, if you can find an expensive first edition, or just download our Just Third Way edition free from the website. We had somebody who said that, The forward that we wrote to it was totally worthless and contradicted everything in the pamphlet. Uh, What this critic didn't realize, however, was the fact that we had run the forward past Father Faree's sister, who was his lifelong secretary, and his surviving students. And they said, yes, you got it, which most people don't. So we can give ourselves a pat on the back, except I don't want to break my arm doing that. What's it say? Don't break your arm patting yourself on the back, yeah? Anyway, the books are free. If you go to, I'll give you a little roadmap here. If you go to the CESJ website, www.cesj.org, uh, it's, you go to the menu bar, it says resources, and you pull that down. I think the free eBooks is the second one down. Uh, and then also be sure to go to the Census fidelian website, go to their store and buy lots of the merchandise there.
1: <laughs> hey, so, hey, hey,
0: this is <laughs> Steve Cunningham and approve this message. Free plug on your own show there. Okay. I was actually going, wow, I know that site. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the thing is, as I said, understanding this is very difficult. And it starts with understanding the difference between individual and social virtue. And that is essential in order to distinguish between the socialist modernist expedience from Catholic social doctrine Grounded in natural law and respect for the dignity of the human person socialism and modernism socialism always modernism usually Is does is not concerned with dignity of the human individual person But with all of humanity now, yes, we should be concerned with the dignity of all of humanity But the reason for catholic social teaching is the dignity of each individual human person. I think it was, was Willie, the poet William Blake who said that God does not deal in generalities, but in minute particulars. I mean, God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. And we don't mean that he knows about everything. He knows everything. That is the smallest molecule. He knows it so completely and thoroughly. That he has no time. He, no, that's the, that's the wrong word. Uh, God does not generalize. God does not abstract. God does not have ideas in the sense that human beings do. What he has is perfect knowledge of everything. So that uh, when people say, like the Platonists do, that ideas have an existence independent of the minds that create them, the human minds, and they are ideas in the mind of God, that's impossible. God does not have ideas. Those are abstractions. Those are generalities. God knows with perfect knowledge everything. Now, to to digress just a little bit, but this is important to understand, you know, the intellect of God. As if we could understand. I'm just talking understand about, not understand it, in the sense that God knows. But God knows everything with practical knowledge. You know, he sees it, he created it, he knows it inside out, upside down and backwards, except himself. But he has perfect speculative knowledge about himself. So he still doesn't abstract even about himself because he knows himself. And that's an important concept, to know yourself, which we'll get to. And God knows himself so perfectly that his speculative knowledge and practical knowledge are completely indistinguishable from one another. Unlike human beings whose practical knowledge is flawed and whose speculative knowledge is even more flawed. Okay, that's your course in philosophy 101 for today, if you're a Thomist. If you're a Platonist, forget it. Now, the basic thing with the with the social doctrine of Pius XI is that he was the first one, so far as we know, except for Aquinas, and Aquinas kind of buried it. Aquinas is not quite as easy to understand as a lot of people think. But what Pius XI discerned in Aquinas was a distinction between two types of virtue: individual and social. Personally, I think that political virtue would have been better than social virtue, but that has a completely different connotation. So forget I said that, that that was an aside comment, but it's based, excuse me, on the fact that, as Aristotle put it, man is by nature a political animal, an individual and a social nature. Well, we know about the individual rights, which there should be correlative social rights which as Pius XI did it, he said uh, that, yes, there is a type of virtue distinct from individual virtue. And that's what this whole talk today is about. Now, recalling, you know, Monsignor Aloysius Taparelli Luigi Aloysius Taparelli in the 1830s and 40s developed a principle of social justice. It was not a particular virtue it was a general principle guiding the exercise of individual virtues it was of course tapparelli developed it in order to counter socialism and modernism and it was as i said a general virtue guiding the individual virtues it was not itself considered a virtue and basically the principle is all acts of the individual must conform to natural law and of course, according to Tapparelli, to Catholic doctrine. And individual acts must always be performed with an eye to their effect on the common good. In other words, and this is what the the socialists and the modernists assumed meant social justice, that all your individual acts must either be performed for the common good completely which is nonsense. An individual act is for the individual good directly, but only indirectly for the common good. Or they say there's no such thing as an individual act. It's all you know, social, it's all common. So they say social justice means individual acts performed on behalf of the collective or for the organization or something, which doesn't make sense when you consider that an individual virtue is for individual good not common good except indirectly now <clears throat> so Pius XI built on that but what he also had to counter and this is why in my uh, personal opinion uh quadra from 1931 and divini Radiam tories in 1937 were up to a point intended to counter the problems caused by Monsignor John A. Ryan of the Catholic University of America, whom we covered in a couple of their previous videos. Uh, due to a number of, vari- of due to various factors, uh, which we covered at, in depth in those videos, Monsignor Ryan and other modernists and socialists were able to redefine Taparelli's principle of social justice as basically socialism and modernism. Because what they lacked was, we know that there must be something that affects the common good directly, because Leo XIII hinted at it. He didn't come flat out and say what it was, but he said enough that we know that there must be something. So they more or less logically concluded it must be socialism, for which they needed modernism to twist Catholic doctrine in order to force socialism to be able to fit into Catholic doctrine which it doesn't do naturally. You have to change a few things here, tweak it a little bit as it were. You're like trying to put, you know, truck tires on your little Volkswagen or something, or vice versa. Both are kind of recipe for disaster. Anyway, as a result of the actions of the various socialists, some of whom we named in the previous videos, uh, distortions didn't just creep in, they galloped in. and. And they were all based on the principle that the end justifies the means. It seemed almost endemic that people who were reading the social encyclicals assumed that the temporary or expedient ameliorative measures that the popes talked about to that we needed to do before we could correct society were the, were the actual end of the encyclicals. So like, we have to distribute charity to keep people alive. We have to do this. But that's only in the interim until we can help make people productive so that they can support themselves with their own efforts. This is why Leo the Thirteenth insisted that as many as possible of the people must become owners so that they can become independent, productive members of society and that you can reserve charity for the truly needy and the unfortunate well the socialists and the modernists assumed that taking care of the unfortunate and the needy was the true end of the encyclicals to create the kingdom of god on earth no uh that is not what it was even though they managed to redefine distributive justice which became you know a euphemism or uh that's not synonym like <laughs> Once in a while, I can remember a word, you know, you ever ever had that, you you think you're having a conversation with someone and you can't remember a word. 14 hours later at three o'clock in the morning, you wake up and say, ah, that was the word I needed. I have perfect 2020 hindsight on that one. Anyway, became a distributive justice in socialism and modernism became a euphemism or a synonym for social justice because they didn't understand that individual good And the common good are two different things the common good is not simply the aggregate of individual goods it's something discrete in and of itself so that social justice with the socialists and the modernists became construed as a replacement for or uh as a substitute for individual justice and charity which is not what it is under tapparelli the principle of social justice was to guide the practice of individual virtue. and But the socialists changed it to, well, no, it's there's no such thing really as individual virtue. It's all for the collective. Everything must be done for the good of humanity in general. Uh, what they neglect to realize or remember is that Catholic social doctrine developed as a, as a conscious way uh, or an effort to counter the new things of socialism, modernism, and esotericism, which was intended to establish and maintain the kingdom of God on earth, the earthly paradise. We're going to make life here perfect by changing human nature and just make certain that everybody lives the perfect life here and now. This was the goal of socialists and modernists. I believe, you know, I went into this in some length in the earlier videos, of course. Uh, Dr. Julian Struba found in almost every single case, socialists were trying to establish in one form or another the kingdom of God on earth, either explicitly or if they rejected religion in, in a secularist fashion. But it was always the same thing. Everybody must live the perfect life here and now rather than view this world as a, as a preparation for the next or for your final end if you don't happen to believe in, in an afterlife or whatever. But the idea is that this life is not an end in and of itself. Now, Pius XI countered the kingdom, you know, the socialist and modernist kingdom of God on Earth with the reign of Christ the King, something different. And this was to establish and maintain what he said on the very first day of his pontificate, right after his election, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. And I have seen for decades all the gyrations people have gone into to try to justify what Pius XI was talking about in terms of what the socialists were talking about, when what Pius XI was talking about was exactly the opposite of what they were talking about. So, in fact, you can go, and I just got off my tracking. Okay, here I am again. So this is the problem with having a script, and you don't look at it. And also, you're going blind, you can't see the silly thing. Okay, what is the reign of Christ the King? Is it, you know, a theocracy here on earth, which is what the socialists were after with the reign of Christ, uh, with the kingdom of God on earth? And a lot of people have been, you know, Quas Primas was the, the encyclical that established the Feast of Christ the King, which is going to be coming up pretty soon. And so many people say, well, this, you know, this is, this is an infallible declaration that a Catholic monarchy is the only legitimate form of government. I have to question whether they actually ever read the thing, because that's not what it says. And also you correlate it with what was going on in Pius XI's other encyclicals and his thought and also where he derived his thought and what was going on in in tandem with this. Because this was when he took Cardinal Bellarmine, who had been languishing in obscurity, who was a champion of democracy against the divine right of kings, Yeah, that's another big, long digression. I'll I'll try to shorten that. And in very short order, he beatified Bellarmine, then canonized him, and a year later named him a doctor of the church after he corrected certain errors in Bellarmine's philosophy, which we won't get into. But he did so because Bellarmine was a champion of democracy, and yet there are all these people saying that what Pius XI was talking about was a divine right monarchy with a Catholic king. No, that is not what it was, because Jesus himself explicitly stated when Pilate asked him, are you a king, which meant something very specific to Pilate, which we won't get into. That's another whole issue. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So anybody who tries to claim that the peace of Christ and the kingdom of Christ means the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth with our perfect society didn't read the New Testament very well. Uh, So it cannot be the kingdom of God on earth or Jesus was a liar. I mean, come on. The guy was under, even if he had been just an ordinary human being and going up before his judge and the judge asks him, are you a king? And Jesus' response was, as you know, well, that's your word for it. What I am isn't even of this world, so you don't even have to be worried about it, which, of course, scared the heck out of Pilate. Of course, his wife had also sent him a little note saying, don't have anything to do with that man. (laughs) See, you should always listen to your wife. She knows better than you, at least in that instance. (laughs) Uh, so, But what is the reign of Christ the king? Well, in temporal terms, which is what we're talking about today, since we're talking natural law, And virtually the whole of this series is on natural law. You notice we don't get too much into Catholic doctrine and explicit Catholic religious beliefs. Virtually everything we've said, someone of another faith or philosophy can take that and say, and, you know, filter out the explicitly Catholic language and say, oh, yes, I can agree with that, if, of course, you're an Aristotelian Thomist of some kind. I mean, Jews and Muslims who follow Maimonides and Ibn Khaldun, respectively, should have no problem with anything we've said. They might have a problem with who Jesus was and is, but not with what he was saying. Uh, So in temporal terms, the reign of Christ the King can only be the environment within which each person to become more fully human, that is, virtuous in the Aristotelian sense, to prepare for that person's final end. Now, as Christians, we believe our final end is to be with God in heaven. I don't know enough about Islam and Judaism or any other uh, faith or philosophy to be able to state explicitly and you know definitively their final end is thus and so. But all of them say the same thing. Live virtuously and according to the will of whatever you worship as best you can and you will prepare yourself for your final end, whatever it may be. This life is not an end in itself, otherwise you've just uh, justified anarchy, greed, and every other vice that everyone agrees their vices. These things like Milton Friedman's greed is good comes across not only as fatuous, but extremely weak. He doesn't really say why it's good, just that he likes it. I said, well, I like a lot of things that aren't good for me, Uh, but to be truly virtuous, you have to try to conform yourself to your own nature. This was the whole point of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics at the beginning. All things tend to the good. And I I think we went into this in a a prior video. Uh, So if you have a bad idea of the good, you're going to go toward what is not good, in which case you should be corrected so that you can aim at the good. This is why uh, the Catholic Church stresses the virtue of fraternal correction so highly, in other words, try to reform people. Don't just condemn them. Hate the sin, not the sinner. Yeah, and some of us don't get that very well. In fact, none of us get it very well, but we we can at least try and give some lip service to it. Now, unfortunately, there's a few difficulties. As Aristotle pointed out, man is by nature a political animal. In other words, we're both individual and social, but without prejudice to either. If you get into individualism, or collectivism or socialism, uh, you're not quite there. There is, of course, some truth in that. We ought, we do have an individual nature, but that doesn't mean we're solely individual. We do have a social nature, but we're not solely social. We're political. Very interesting word that I think Aristotle may even have invented it, uh, for all I know. I don't know ancient Greek or even his Macedonian dialect. Uh, But it's human beings by nature associate in consciously organized groups called the polis, the city, so that these people who will say, oh, anarchy is best. No, 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 no. Or like Locke in Sydney, their big mistake was to assume that the state of nature is outside of an organized society. No, our place is in society. We are political. We do this by our very nature. And uh, the way to become virtuous, no, oh, excuse me, becoming virtuous, therefore, requires organized institutions to assist us in this task because we are both individual and social. And the whole of the common good is required, you know, which is, can be construed as this vast network of institutions. With It's not just individual effort, it's social effort. But what do you mean by social effort? You mean organized effort within institutions that are properly structured, which is why it's the common good. Now, the thing is that institutions are made by human beings for human beings, they are not divinely instituted, even though you'll say, oh, but what about a divine right monarchy? Well, Cardinal Bellarmine's political theories pretty much undermine that. It is no human being is also at the same time a divine institution. I mean, even Jesus himself is not an institution. He is a God-man. So it's not quite the same thing. Uh, and the Catholic Church, even though it is divinely instituted in Catholic belief, of course, is man made and maintained. It, it's, it's an institution. Fortunately, however, as uh, it, it's, it's divinely guided, otherwise, <laughs> I said, what was it? Hilaire Belloc is alleged to have said uh, if the Catholic Church weren't divinely instituted and maintained, no. We we know that it is because no other inst- no one would make a fortnight. It's knavish imbecility. Yeah, you can look uh, at that right now. Look at <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being mean to the Catholic Church. I'm I'm being mean to the people who think that they know better than God. I mean, but in Divini Rademptoris, Pius Eleventh made this clear. Now this is going to be another one of those extended quotes that I read with with perhaps a little commentary. I, I do hate to read quotes, but as I said, these people said things so much better than I did. And also it's important to see what was said and the way people are misinterpreting it. So in paragraph 29 of Divini, Divini Redemptoris, which in a very real sense is the second half of Quadragesimo Anno. See, in Quadragesimo Anno, Pius XI went after the, the religious and the utopian the democratic socialists. In Divini Redemptoris, on atheistic communism, he went after everything else. But what's in either of them applies to both. And basically, together they form, as Father Faree pointed out in Introduction to Social Justice, the pamphlet I referred you to, and also in the Act of Social Justice, if you really want to wade through that. The whole point is the Act of Social Justice. Defining social justice as a particular virtue, which is what we're getting into, uh, which is, of course, why this is titled The Act of Social Justice. Now, as it says in Divini Redemptoris, and bear with me while I quote, and I just had the sun come in on me, so (laughs) I can't see the page very well. Okay. It says, God has destined man for civil society according to the dictates of his very nature. Right there, he says, Man is by nature a political animal. He's he's basically paraphrasing Aristotle. In the plan of the creator, society is a natural means which man can and must use to reach his destined end. We covered that. As political animals, we require normally. This is not to say that sometimes hermits and anchorites and such can't reach human perfection or can't strive for human perfection, but ordinarily, We require an organized society and a common good to be able to become virtuous in the ordinary way. Now, society is for man and not vice versa. Okay, as has been said other places, the state is for man, man is not for the state. The the state, let's see, yeah. The state was made for man, man was not made for the state. I can't remember who said it that way, but it's it's basically the same thing. This must not be understood in the sense of liberalistic individualism, which subordinates society to the selfish use of the individual. In other words, extreme capitalism, which, which is not tending to, to, one of the problems with both socialism and capitalism is that they're both based on exalting an abstraction. In capitalism, it's the ownership elite or the political elite, and because in capitalism, the the economics takes over society, takes over politics, whereas in socialism, politics takes over economics. But it's the same thing, an abstraction is ruling. Uh, Only in the sense that by means of an organic union with society and by mutual collaboration, the attainment of earthly happiness is placed within the reach of all. And this is solidarity. Now, By by talking about the attainment of earthly happiness, notice that he qualifies that by saying earthly happiness, because he just said our true end is not here, but for Christians, it's in heaven. But that does not mean that we should eschew or just simply ignore earthly happiness, because this is the environment within, within which we prepare ourselves for eternal happiness. So setting out to make people miserable deliberately is the wrong thing to do. And within reason, we should strive to make this life as bearable and as good for as many people as possible as much as we can in human terms. But if we sacrifice everything to try to make life, you know, good for as many people as possible, the greatest good for the greatest number is not really a good guide. It's the... The greatest good for everyone, every single member of society is entitled to, the, to access to the means and opportunity to become more virtuous. Numbers, mere numbers mean nothing. It's either all or nothing. That's, that's one of the places where Catholic social doctrine differs from socialism and modernism. I think I saw, I got into an argument with someone on Facebook yesterday, the day before, I think. And they were saying that in order to, you know, prevent one child from being abused, I would allow 100 abortions. I thought, well, first of all, you can't prove that by performing 100 abortions, you're going to avoid abusing one single child. Aside from the fact that abortion itself is child abuse, in my opinion. Uh, There is no direct cause and effect. But what do you mean by... You know, why is this one better than these hundred? We're all fully human and human in the same way. You can't play a numbers game with this sort of thing. It it doesn't work. It doesn't even make sense. (coughs) Now to continue our extended quote and commentary, society affords the opportunities for the development of all the individual and social gifts bestowed on human nature. That is, society is supposed to but badly structured institutions often prevent this. This was the whole point of Quadragesimo Anno and Divini Redemptorius. Quadragesimo Anno was called on the restructuring of the social order in order to make it so that as many, so that everybody ideally could have access to the means and opportunity to become more virtuous. Now, these natural gifts have a value surpassing the immediate interests of the moment For in society, they reflect the divine perfection, which would not be true were man to live alone. In other words, this is another acknowledgement of our political nature. It's possible to, you know, become more virtuous living off in the desert someplace as, as a hermit or something. But by and large, the normal way of doing this is to live in society with others. Nevertheless, society is made for man that he may recognize this reflection of god's perfection and refer it in praise and adoration to the creator in other words this life is not an end in itself it is to prepare us to be with god in heaven if you're a christian and as i said i don't know enough about the other faiths and philosophies to be able to say you know what the final end is with any degree of accuracy because sure as shooting, what is it they say? You get two Jews, you get six opinions. I mean, <laughs> a, a Jew told me that, so it's okay. <laughs> I said, Now, let's okay, see, I and I get up. now. The the this is the key part of the quote to which all this was leading up to only man the human person and not society in any form, and that includes human beings in an official capacity. Like the Pope as a man and the Pope as Pope, don't confuse them. The Pope as a man is pretty much like the rest of us, but the Pope as Pope fulfills certain things, but that is actually uh, not the human person, that is an official person, if that makes sense. It's just like the king can do no wrong. Well, understanding that, uh, that correctly is that in the performance of his duties, you cannot uh, go after somebody in an official capacity simply because he made a mistake. In other words, but if he does wrong deliberately, of course you can go after him. It doesn't mean that, that, that somebody in an official capacity cannot commit, cannot do wrong. Even though there are certain politicians today who think that their office gives them the, the power to, to be impeccable. Everything they do is right simply because they're in this office. No, that was never the case, not even for the Pope or the Emperor. Now, the thing was, to, to move on, that particular thing, that only man... The human person and not society in any form, whether you're talking the collective, whether you're talking the village, whether you're talking the state, any of that, only the human person has rights. Only the human person is endowed with free will. That's it. All these other things are human creations. Now, pious. And this is important because that's the main difference between socialism and Catholic social teaching. The dignity of the individual human person is what Catholic social teaching is all about. Socialism, and this is not to say this is not a laudable goal, but it is not the only one, the dignity of humanity as a whole. It is, that is good, but it is not the only thing, and it is subordinate to the dignity of each individual human person. And that's the difference between the socialist idea of social justice and the Catholic idea of social justice, especially as defined by Pius XI. Now, where did Pius XI actually get this idea? Because it seems odd that you know Aristotle only talked about individual virtue. But it turns out that Aquinas saw discerned two types of What he he called legal justice. To Aristotle, legal justice was the indirect effect that the practice of individual virtue had on the common good. If you are individually virtuous, this will have a good effect on the common good. And this is what Aristotle called legal justice. If you read Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, there's a passage there that most people just kind of bleep over because it's very complex if you don't realize that he was talking about a different type of legal justice. And it was very confusing because he was using the term legal justice for two different things. One, he was agreeing with Aristotle. Legal justice is this indirect fallout effect that that individual virtue has on the common good. But then he said something very odd, that legal justice alone looks directly at the common good. Well, wait a minute, you just finished a big, long discussion on how legal justice is indirect. Now you say it's direct. Well, Pius XI somehow realized that Aquinas was talking about two different things, unfortunately calling both of them legal justice. So, you know, the first type, So what Pius XI saw was that Aquinas was talking about two different types of legal justice. Whereas Aristotle was only talking about one. And the first type, the general virtue, is that it has no particular act. It it has an indirect effect on the common good. It's It's a sort of fallout effect. And acts by, but the particular kind of legal justice were that organized acts by groups can act directly on the common good. And if you read Aquinas very carefully in that one passage, and I forgot to note the the site for it, but but it's there. Uh, It was the odd statement that groups of people can act directly on the common good, which contradicted what he had just said earlier. Uh, And of course, both were called legal justice, one general, but one was particular. So what Pius XI did was say, you know, this is kind of dumb to call both things, which basically contradict each other, by the same term. So what he did was say, uh, we will use legal justice to talk about what Aristotle was talking about, that indirect effect that individual virtue has on the common good, our institutions, but we will use Taparelli's term social justice which he used only as a principle to describe the, the, the virtuous practice of you know, you know, individual virtue and the beneficial effect. But we will use that term to describe the particular virtue by means of which we can act directly on the common good, but also indirectly on individual virtue. You see the the the, the how they fit together. Legal justice, according to Pius XI, is simply the indirect effect that individual virtue has whereas social justice has an indirect effect on individual virtue but a direct effect on the common good uh, we, we we did cover this in an earlier video and there's this nice little graph that i didn't include in uh today's slides but you know again to summarize uh individual virtue versus social virtue individual virtue is what benefits individual. Human persons directly, and the common good, indirectly. Individual virtue uh, versus social virtue again, but social virtue is what benefits the common good directly and individuals indirectly. And so, all these people who say that they're doing social justice by, you know, setting up soup kitchens and taking care of people and calling it or paying a living wage or a just wage, whatever you want to call it, and say, we're doing social justice. No, you're not. You're doing individual justice and charity. Social justice would be working on the institutions so that those people can take care of themselves or so that will allow you to carry out these acts. Social justice enables individual virtue. It does not replace it or substitute for it. I mean, this is such a difficult concept that we have had people, when we're trying to explain the operation of social justice and say it's not the practice of individual virtue, they'll say, you're not being socially just, uh, you, or you don't know what social justice is. Now, without getting into a you know, tit for tat back and forth, oh, no, you're the one who doesn't know what it is, It's based on, you really have to understand that there is a distinction. Social justice is not merely an organized expression of individual acts or individual goods. Social justice is directed to the common good, that vast network of institutions. It is not directed to individual good of any kind. It is directed to common good. Now, how do we distinguish social justice, or even social virtue, from individual virtue. but And Father Faree did it in a, a discussion of the four causes. Uh, this is a philosophical term. Excuse me. And this is not an introduction to social justice. It's toward the end of the act of social justice, and it gets pretty deep. Because uh, it does, and I'll, I'll try to summarize in a way that Actual human beings like me can understand it, not philosophers. Uh, and there, there, there's a doctor of philosophy I know whose, whose name is Steve. And I'll say, Steve, if you're watching this, forgive me, please don't come after me. Because th- this guy is very punctilious about his philosophical work. And he'll say, Well, don't you mean this rather than that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was talking like a normal person, not a philosopher. Uh, he actually gets to teach this stuff and get paid for it. Uh, anyway, in Thomism, cause it means it's, it's drawn from an Arist- a word Aristotle used that I can't pronounce Greek. I, I recognize, I can't, don't even recognize most of the letters. What does it say? Greka mes non potes legi. This is Greek, it cannot be read. But, so, but, it, but it means explanation or answer to a why question. And the four causes are the efficient cause, the material cause, the final cause, and the formal cause. You're not really ready for this, are you? But we'll do it anyway. The efficient cause is the agent who carries out the act. And for social justice, it is never the individual as an individual. An individual as an individual cannot be socially just only an individual who is a member of a group acting on behalf of the group can be socially just or carry out an act of social justice Uh, the material cause that is material in the sense that you would think of you know the substance of of the act Uh, and i'll explain that in a little bit because for our purposes efficient cause is the most important one for this discussion They're all important, of course. Uh, And then the final cause, that is, what is the result sought? Uh, Well, to improve the common good. The common good is the final cause of all social, social virtue. The final cause of all individual virtue is the human person. But the final cause of all social virtue is the common good, within which individuals become virtuous and achieve their final, end. excuse me, I, I, I just hit the camera. <laughs> this, this is, you know, you're really getting excited about something when you wave your arms about, maybe I should move to Italy or something. That They don't even talk, they just wave their arms. That's me, uh, I just wave my arms. If I could talk about the way we don't have any more toilet paper. <laughs> my <arms wave>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, And then formal cause, which is the shape or form of the act, which is, Organization. Now, here's the way that Father Faree put it in the act of social justice. And remember, this was his doctoral thesis, so it may be slightly above, so you have to pay close attention. Says summary the efficient cause, only the member of a group is capable of an act of social justice. And all men, meaning all human persons, regardless of class distinctions set up by ancient philosophy, are so capable. In other words, every single human being by nature, there may be what they call accidentals that prevent us, but by our nature, our substance, we are capable of being the efficient cause of an act of social justice. The material cause, the immediate and proper matter of social justice, is the organization of human acts into social media and institutions, social habits, of which society is composed. When acts of other virtues become commanded acts of social justice, they take on the new material aspect of organization. In other words, you can't just go out and commit, excuse me, not commit, but exercise an act of individual virtue and claim it is socially just. You can only do it within the context of organization directed to the common good. I told you this was getting pretty deep, and I hope everyone put on their hip readers on this one. Final cause. The common good is the direct object of the act of social justice. The common good is the perfection of the vast hierarchy of the institutions of human life. Now, remember, in the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, it said achieve a more perfect union. Now, that means we must work toward perfection, of course, Knowing all the time we're never going to achieve it in this life. And in fact, here, here's my theory of heaven is that the only way eternity, eternity becomes bearable is to constantly strive and become more perfect, knowing you will never achieve perfection. But it's there before you. Only God is infinitely perfect, whereas human beings are infinitely perfect, a bull. That's, that is our incomplete analogy with the with, with God's being and that sort of thing, which we won't get into. <laughs> that, that won't be on the test for this one. Then you have the formal cause. The final cause is to an operation as form is to matter. Therefore, the speci- I mean, when we talk about form and substance, we're using the philosophical terms here. Uh, therefore, the specific formality of the act of social justice is that it be done for the common good. This formality should not be construed as a mere good intention. Remember Taparelli's principle of social justice. This is not what Father Free was saying. Tapparelli's principle of social justice was individual acts with a good intention to the common good. Father Free says, that's not good enough. It's good, but it's not good enough. It says, is not a mere good intention added to individual acts for it must give form and shape to life in the real order. In other words, the true form of the act of social justice is actually to work directly on the common good, its institutions, not simply say, oh, I hope it it has a good effect on it. So this is not, it's, it's not I mean, the act of social justice is therefore not an organized or widespread practice of individual virtue or even acts directed at individual good or goods, regardless how many people are affected or how big the problem is. It is only to institutions, not individuals. That is so key, and it is what the, the socialists and modernists can't seem to grasp, and even quite a few other people who think that they know Catholic social teaching, but then forget that it's specifically social, which brings in, you know, what is the common good? So many people think it's, oh, that's just the aggregate of individual goods, or it's goods owned by the state. No. Individual goods are individual. Goods owned by the state are an expedient simply because it's probably inconvenient or expensive or there's some other reason why individuals can't own them. Strictly speaking, and in theory, there is nothing that the state owns that individuals can't own. So you can't really call that part of the common good because they could be individually owned. And there's various ways to do that, but we won't get into that. I mean, this is not a class in economics here. It could be, but, uh, because after all, economics is a social science, but we're talking social virtue here, not economics. Now, what is the common good? Most simply put, the common good that defines us as human, in other words, the common good is the good common to every single human being. Which is, I mean, that's so obvious that you have to state it, because so many people won't understand that so but the common good that defines us as human is the capacity that is inherent in every single human being to become virtuous or vicious because with free will we can go either way now individually the common good consists of each person's natural rights by means of which we build habits of doing good or evil in other words it's that uh capacity we have to become good or evil, which is manifested by our exercise of our rights. This is why we have rights, and it's why they are essential. This is why we have inalienable rights inherent in human nature of life, liberty, and private property, because if we did not have them, we could not become virtuous or vicious, because that implies free will, and how can you, you know, a right is, uh, it means you have the power to do or not do some act or acts in relation to others. But power itself means the ability for doing. If you don't have rights, you can't do. And if you can't do, you can't become virtuous or even vicious, period. Uh, Now, socially, the common good consists of that vast network of institutions Social habits. Think of it. An institution is a social habit. A virtue or a vice is an individual habit. So, I mean, some of this gets pretty rarefied, and you may have to think about it for a bit, but it's worth it. Uh, So the common good, socially, consists of that vast network of institutions, social habits, within which human persons as political animals, there that is again, become virtuous or vicious. This is why, you know, we can talk about individuals being virtuous or vicious, but we can't talk about institutions being virtuous or vicious. They are, as John Paul II put it, structures of sin or structures of virtue. They are not in and of themselves as human creations, virtuous or vicious, but they can encourage us to do it. You know, ultimately, no one is forced to do evil. You can always resist, even if they kill you. Uh, there's probably some exceptions to that, but I'm in absolute terms, you always have the choice of, of, of dying or being killed, actually. Um, uh, that's how we get martyrs uh of course the irish talked about the white martyrdom which was uh, going away from your own home to carry the word out to all the benighted peoples who hadn't heard it yet whether they wanted to or not actually i think inside most people do want to hear this it's whether they've been inculturated to, to to listen to it and understand it which is why the, i would hate to be a missionary you have got the toughest job uh, next to being an ordinary human being, I guess. (laughs) Now, the thing was that there have been evolving views of the common good. And this is critical to understanding the difference between Aristotle and Aquinas and how Aquinas managed to correct Aristotle while maintaining almost complete conformity with Aristotle's orientation toward human dignity because despite the fact that he thought that there were different grades of humanity and some natural slaves who weren't even human at all, the principle was still there, even though it was badly distorted. Aristotle was a genius. I mean, really, I'm not being sarcastic or anything else. He made mistakes, he was human, but even his mistakes were brilliant. I mean, you gotta be one heck of a genius to be able to make even your mistakes. On that order. So, with respect to the common good, for the, at the individual level, uh, he believed that all human beings have different capacities to acquire and develop virtue, become virtuous. Some who are human only in, in, imper- in appearance—these are the natural slaves—have no capacity for virtue at all. And, but that presented him with another problem. This is another. This is a digression, but it's an important one. He saw that some slaves behaved as if they were actually human. And they participated in society as if they were human. Well, how can that happen? Well, two reasons. Perhaps this person should not be a slave. I mean, captives taken in war, what are you going to do with them? Kill them? Well, that's not human. Besides, you need human labor. So you enslave the person, even though he's not really a natural slave and probably should not be a slave but political expedience says that's what you do with them. Then there's the human in appearance type critters who they have no capacity for virtue, but they're acting like human beings. How do they do that? Well, because their master, their owner reflects virtue on that person, basically delegates virtue to his slave so that the slave can act as if it were human. And Terrible theory. I mean, how can you possibly say that this this human being is not really human? But, as I said, Aristotle was a genius, and even his mistakes were brilliant. How is it that a government, which is a thing created by human beings, govern human beings? Well, because actual human beings delegate certain rights to the government in order to, so that the government can function. In other words, the government is, in a sense, the slave of the people that created it. So, and this is how a corporation works, an artificial person. So, in other words, a corporation is owned by natural persons, but it acts as through its human agents as if it were a human person, or an, actually an artificial person. And all of this comes from Aristotle's horrendous theory of natural slavery. Horrible idea that, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe it does have some validity in other circumstances once you get away from the fact that you shouldn't be owning human beings. Shouldn't you? <laughs> we won't get into that. It's, it's, it's horrifying. So we'll just kind of laugh about it and go on to the next important point. Now, Aquinas' concept of the common good, similar but perfected in a sense. Not perfect, but perfected. Uh, Aquinas corrected Aristotle by explaining that, consistent with Aristotle's own first principle of reason, all human beings are as fully human and human in the same way as all other human beings. Now, so why do some people not act virtuously? Free will. I mean, a quick, glib, uh, yet profound response every single human being has what aquinas called the analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue that is a really complicated and profound way of saying not that we're identical because we're not and we're not clones and it's not the same but that's it it's an easy if incorrect way of saying that all human beings have the same, and I just said it wrong, it's analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue. And as I said, but only God is virtue entire. Uh, He is, you know, infinitely perfect, but our analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue means we are infinitely perfectible. We are like God in his image and likeness in that we are perfect a bull, but not infinitely perfect. That's your theology for the day. (laughs) It's also actually philosophy, you know, if you stop to think about it, where philosophy and theology merge. They're both sciences. This is why, for example, papal infallibility, every now and then you'll find someone who finds where a pope made a mistake in theology but that's not faith or morals that's a science a pope can be wrong in theology just like he can be wrong in economics he can be wrong in science he can be wrong in math he can be wrong as whether it's day or night outside that has no effect on the validity of infallibility which applies only to faith and morals not to any form of science that's the plug there for the uh, for the first vatican council which defined formally the primacy of reason and the infallibility of the teaching office of the Roman Pontiff they even tried to avoid calling it papal infallibility because they didn't want people thinking that the Pope as Pope was infallible no only in faith and morals under certain conditions okay now we're into knowing that the common good is something to which everyone by very nature should have full and complete access and that the common good in a social fashion, see, because just as individually we are all obliged to become virtuous, socially we are all obliged and have actually a personal responsibility to participate in society and to undertake acts of social justice if our institutions are flawed. And remember, Social justice is to enable individual virtue virtues, not substitute for them. It is a discrete area. Uh, so that the act of social justice is to make the practice of individual virtues possible by removing barriers to participation in the common good, not to substitute or replace substitute for or replace individual virtues. See, this is where it gets very sticky uh, because if you start confusing individual justice and charity and social justice and charity, you're going to get sucked into socialism and modernism one way or another. You, you, you can't avoid it. You have to keep them separate, even though they must also at the same time work together. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the medieval discussion between the intellect and the will. If you're a Thomist, the intellect and the will must be considered separately, but they are, God is perfect, therefore the act and the will are conjoined. There is no difference between what God thinks and what he does. Whereas among, for instance, the Scotists and the alchemists and the other schools, they separate the intellect from the will and give primacy to the will, which means you just separated God's will from God's nature, which is self-realized in his intellect. And boy, you really got into a mess there, because you just changed the whole concept of natural law from human nature, which is a reflection of God's nature, to what you think God said at some point, or something that you accept as God, whether it's the state, the dictator, or the tree that you worship, or whatever. If you put everything on the will... You're, you're a, what they call a fideist, and I think it was Ralph McInerney in his book on miracles, who said that fideism is the single greatest danger to the Catholic Church today. And frankly, you can say that fideism is the single greatest danger to any organized religion or philosophy today. Because once you go with the will, anything goes, as Heinrich Roman pointed out in his book on natural law. Uh, you get away from the absolutes of God's nature as far as we can discern them, and go with somebody's idea of what God's will is, which means that might makes right. If you're strong enough to force your idea of what you think God's will is on others, well, who's to say that you're wrong? Because that's your opinion, and you have great faith. I remember somebody once criticized my analysis of Catholic social teaching by saying, says, my faith is as strong as Granny's. I said, Well, I never said it wasn't, but let's hear your argument. And this is the same guy who said, I don't have to prove anything to you. Well, actually, you do, since this is a debate. <laughs> now, in, be, because you, 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 the whole difference between socialism and social justice as understood in, in Catholic social teaching is that it does confuse you know, the, what social justice does. Now, this is where Father Ferri really goes to town. And you can tell that he was a university professor. I think he's he was uh, president of Shamanad College when it was college, I think it's university now, in Honolulu. He was rector of the Catholic University of Puerto Rico and he was chairman of Dayton University in Ohio. And he was also, as, as I said, a functionary in Rome. He was uh, got into the administration of his order. He was a Marianist. And there are two Marianist orders, and I don't understand the difference between them. And I visited both websites, and they start to explain it, and I can't figure it out. But he was... S.M. Society of Mary that was founded by, I think the guy was Chaminade, Father Chaminade. Uh, and so in Introduction to Social Justice, he Father Furry first gives this quote from Quadragesimo Anno to show how people misunderstand social justice. And I'm going to inflict quotes upon you again. It says, now, Father Furry used a slightly different translation of quadragesimo anno than the one that is current right now, but there is no difference in the substance. There may be difference in words, a couple of them. It says, every effort must therefore be made that fathers of families receive a wage large enough to meet common domestic needs adequately. But if this cannot always be done under existing circumstances, social justice demands that changes be introduced into the system as soon as possible whereby such a wage will be assured to every adult working man. That's Quadragesimo Anno, paragraph 71. Now, Father Fari really goes to town on this one, as I said. And in Introduction to Social Justice, he first gives that passage, and then he says, Now, if we were to hand this quotation to a number of people and ask each one of them what social justice demands in it, almost every one of them would answer a family wage. Now, some people will say living wage or just wage or frontier wage or whatever. But the fact is they will say that what that passage is talking about is paying people a wage or a working man, whatever. And then Father Faree says, they would all be wrong. Real, real diplomatic. I understand he was much more diplomatic in person. (laughs) He says, Look again at the syntax of the sentence. This is this is where his professor professorness comes out, comes to the fore. It says, look again at the syntax of the sentence. The direct object of the predicate demands is the clause that changes be introduced into the system. The Pope's teaching on the family wage is that it is due in commutative or strict justice to the individual worker. In other words, uh of course you have to understand what subject and predicate and direct object are. So if you don't remember your English grammar, you're going to be, you may be at C in this, uh, but he stressed, father Faree stresses, what does social justice demand that changes be introduced into the system, not payment of the family wage or just wage or whatever. Then father Faree says what social justice demands is something specifically social. The reorganization of the system, for it is the whole system which is badly organized, socially unjust, when it withholds from the human beings whose lives are bound up in it, the power to meet common domestic needs adequately. So that even in that passage, what is the end of the act of social justice in that circumstance, not even payment of the wage, but the ability to meet common domestic needs adequately, but which you could say, well, you're talking about not a just wage, but a just income. And if it's by payment of a wage or payment of profit sharing or payment something by means of which people can meet common domestic needs adequately is the point of social justice in that paragraph. Not, oh, well, that's the paragraph that commands us to pay wages at a level that people need to exist on. That's not what it said as Father Faree pointed out very strongly. In fact, that, that particular passage has is, is been the cause of great acrimony because throughout Quadragesimo Anno, uh, Pius XI will make some comment to the fact that, you know, workers should be empowered to be able to acquire private property. But how can this be done except by paying them more? Well, there's all kinds of ways in modern finance that they can do it. You must not be trapped. Remember when we discussed papal infallibility, it's faith and morals, not specific applications of matters of faith and morals. So if someone says, well, the idea is that workers be compensated adequately, and some other people will say, well, that means wages, because that's what the pope said. Yes, but the pope was applying a principle that payment of wages is not itself a principle. I have actually seen people that claim that, that the Catholic Church teaches a just wage doctrine. No, it teaches a just wage principle, something different. A principle is not the same as a doctrine. It is an application of a doctrine. So uh, that, to sum up, at this point, social justice enables individual justice and charity whereas individual justice and charity are only indirect on social on on the common good the common good is the environment within which we become virtuous whereas we become virtuous by exercising our individual virtues society isn't going to make us virtuous i mean Congress or something can vote us all kinds of medals and honors and elect us to all kinds of office, but that does not mean we are virtuous. It just means that we've got a job to do or that we're being recognized for something we've done. Now, one of the things that Father Fareed did to make our job easier in trying to figure out what the heck social justice is, is he discerned what he called the laws and characteristics of social justice. And he qualified this by saying there are probably more. In fact, Pius XI hinted it more, but these were the ones that Father Fareed discerned in his doctoral thesis and, of course, summarized in Introduction to Social Justice, the pamphlet that you probably should read, and it, as I said, it's free. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, the laws of social justice, and these are explained in greater length in the pamphlet, so I won't do any more than just go over them. Uh, one, that the common good be kept inviolate. Because the common good is the environment within which we ordinarily become virtuous, we must maintain it almost at all cost. In other words, it can demand great sacrifices. One of the reasons for maintaining a just society is, and for instance, the just war doctrine. Suppose someone attacks your just society without cause or with incomplete cause or for an unjust cause, you not only have the right to defend yourself, you have the duty, and you can even call on people uh, to you know, conscript them into the military if that's what it takes in order to defend your society, as long as you don't thereby use it as an excuse to make your society unjust. I have a whole big speech on that one, too. Now, the second law of social justice, cooperation, not conflict. This does not mean you abolish competition. Competition is good, but competition as the only thing, or conflict as the only thing to crush your adversaries, competition doesn't mean necessarily that you eliminate your adversary. You just try to do better, or you use it so that each one does better in his own particular area. Uh, In economics, they have something called the theory of comparative advantage that in global trade or in regional trade, areas specialize in what they do best so that they can take that and trade it with other areas for what those other areas do best. Now, of course, there are economies on the globe that can do everything they want, but there are other economies that can't quite make the grade with certain things, so they need to trade with the other economies. So what are you going to trade? Well, whatever we do best, comparatively, even if it's not as good as what the other economy could do for itself. As long as each economy covers its basics of food clothing and shelter for all its citizens, that is, you know. And what other, other essentials there are. The theory of comparative advantage, it works to everyone's benefit, even though they're in competition. So, conflict competition is not necessarily conflict, but that doesn't mean that you can't cooperate in competition. Now, the third law of social justice, these are as Father Fareed discerned them, is one's first particular good is one's own place in the common good. Now, that was one of them that I had a great deal of difficulty with. Uh, And this is why earlier in this presentation, I stressed, know yourself. In other words, to to thine own self be true. The thing is that... uh, in every circuit, you know, the common good is constantly changing. So as 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 Pius Leal put it, society is in a condition of radical instability. It is never the same one instant to the next. Everything is always changing, even if it's only time itself. In other words, right now you are the host of a TV program. Uh in 15 minutes or so, possibly, I don't know what time how long is it going to take you might be the father of the family or you might be the fellow taking orders from his wife to go to the store and get something or you might be the householder moving into a new house you know and even at one moment in time you may be a number of different things but the key to that and this this is a very simplistic way of putting it you have to know yourself and what you're doing at the moment now in a more uh a comprehensive sense It is, you know, knowing who you are and how you fit into society. This does not mean that everyone has a specific place and you can't get out of it. But at each moment, you do fit into society and you have to know how you do it. And this is not getting into religion per se, but psychologists and philosophers recognize the importance of confession. Because confession requires self examination. Who am I? And how do I fit into my own life? And how do I fit into the lives of others? I mean, of course, sacramentally, confession is an essential, but it's also socially and individually essential. It's not just a sacrament, there's a reason it's a sacrament. Of course, not just to get you good with God, as they put it very simplistically, but to get you good with yourself and to get you good with other people. I mean, as I said, this is the deepest presentation yet. <laughs> I mean, no, so, nah, but wait, there's more. Uh, uh, Father Free discerned a total of seven different laws of social justice, and he said, but there are probably many more. He says, the fourth law, as he saw it, was each is directly responsible. Now, as a human being and as a political animal, as a participant in the common good, and not just an individual anarchist or something, you also have a personal responsibility to maintain the common good. That means if you see something wrong, you, you can't go charging off to fix it yourself, like Don Quixote de la Mancha, or go running away from it, like the anarchists want to do. You are obligated To organize with others and in social justice work to fix what is wrong, to reform our institutions so that they operate once again the way they're supposed to, to help each of us become virtuous and hopefully avoid vice. Excuse me. Now, the fifth law of social justice. Higher institutions must never displace lower ones. Now, this is the principle of subsidiarity. But it does not mean, as Father Faree uh, said, that he was debating with an earnest young man during the turbulence of the 60s. Like the way he put it, This is when he was chairman of Dayton University. He says, this earnest young man kept insisting the lower orders are always right. That's not what subsidiarity means. Subsidiarity doesn't mean the lowest order is always right. What it means is that the lowest order that has the the duty or the, or is some i can't think of the word right now and this will be one of those words i remember at three o'clock in the morning but it's not the lowest order or the highest order that some people think subsidiarity is does not mean that the state does whatever the individual cannot do for himself what it means is that the most appropriate level of the common good is where the action should take place for example the individual as an individual should not be making decisions for his entire family one individual or family should not make decisions for the entire village one little village should not make the decisions for you know the entire state or whatever it's whatever is the most appropriate level is where the power should subsist so you know that's the principle of subsidiarity not that One order is always right and the other one's always wrong. The sixth law of social justice is freedom of association, liberty. If you are required, in other words, have the moral obligation to organize with others to carry out acts of social justice, then you must be free to do so. You must have freedom of association to organize uh, with others in order to reform the common good. One of the things the communists and the Nazis and the fascists did was forbid people to organize, at least of their own volition. Uh, I think it was, uh, I don't know, what, the, what was the guy's name? Uh, it just went out of my head. But he wrote a, a book about uh, George Holland. Sorry. Yeah. He wrote an entire book on political, the history of political theory. And he pointed out that during the Nazi and fascist era in Germany and Italy, it says people were organized up to their eyeballs. But they were told which groups to belong to. They did not organize themselves. The fascists and the, the Nazis you know, attacked Catholic action, which was freedom of association. Let's organize to you know, directly affect carry out acts of social justice to affect, you know, the reforms of the common good. No, the Nazis and the fascists, okay, you're in this group, you're in this group, you're in this group, and you will do as you are told. So even though everything seemed to be organized, what you basically had was the individual absolutely naked before the state, no power whatsoever. In fact, the whole theory of jurisprudence in fascist Italy and in Nazi Germany was to take everything away from the individual. Invested in the state or the party, whichever one. Now, the seventh law of social justice is all vital interests should be organized. And what that is, is simply an acknowledgement of we are political animals. So that anything that vitally affects us as human beings, political animals, should be organized. In other words, it should take place in the polis, in the political order. We can't just go off on our own and say, this is good for us. No, it should be organized. Now, along with that, boy, I really skipped over my notes. Uh, Yeah, okay, I'm back on track, Uh, I hope. Anyway, now we get to the characteristics of social justice. Uh, These are not the laws, but it's by these, by which you... Boy, the syntax of that was really cruddy. Uh, this is the characteristics are what we may know something is social justice by. Social, okay, all the English teachers can write in and tell me how lousy I, I just did that. Uh, we, we will know social justice by its characteristics. Okay, one, and of course, as Father Faree pointed out, there are others. It says one only by members of groups. Remember our discussion of the four causes. Only a member of a group, acting on behalf of a group, can carry out an act of social justice. Otherwise, it's individual justice, or it may even be a vice. Two, it takes time. In other words, organizing takes time. Being a dictator doesn't take any time at all. You just simply grab power, grab somebody by the neck and tell them to do something. But if you want to organize with somebody, that requires persuasion you have to discuss you have to come to a consensus and of course that doesn't take place immediately i was in a meeting last night and boy were they consensusing i mean i thought we'd never reach some decisions on some things but that's what social justice is about you don't just simply order people you persuade you agree you come to a consensus now number the third characteristic is one that a lot of people understand the first time they hear it because it sounds dumb nothing is impossible well that means in social terms i mean you have to you know edit these things or you know interpret them the right way things that were are impossible for an individual human being and this is where people misunderstand subsidiarity they say Oh, if it's impossible for one person, then the state must do it. No. If it's impossible for one person, what you do is you organize with others. Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America had a fascinating passage on this, where he says that association comes naturally to Americans, where in England, people wait around for the great man to do something, or where in France, people wait around for the government to do something, in the United States, in the 1830s, not today. <laughs> it's uh, kind of reversed right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, says, Americans, uh, uh, just by nature, if they see a problem, they get organized and fix it. If there's a traffic tie-up, and of course he was talking about horses and carriages, which are worse than cars. says, somebody gets organized and starts directing traffic. Uh, if children join together for a game, first thing they do is get organized and set the rules. Uh, if there's a problem of drunkenness in town, they get organized and, you know, form a temperance society. If they the street needs paving, let's form an association and get the street paved. We don't wait around for the government to do it. We get organized. In fact, at least in the 1830s, uh, de Tocqueville said the, 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 the habit of association is so strong in Americans that the central government seems hardly to govern at all. <laughs> to have those days back. <laughs> well, one of the tasks of the, of the one of the goals, I should say, of the Center for Economic and Social Justice is to get these ideas across and get it and, and get people empowered to the point where they can get organized and do for themselves, what most people now expect the state to do or for somebody else to do for them. This is the whole idea of Catholic social teaching is to empower people to take control over their own lives so that they can once again become virtuous. Maybe I'm a cynic. The only time people get organized anymore is for uh, their fancy football draft. Well, in a sense, you're echoing what father Faree was talking about. (laughs) We have, we have an unpublished fragment called, uh, 40 years after Ellipsis, uh, and I wish he had, he had finished it, but he started it, you know, just a few months before he died and, uh, in 1985, and it's like, wow, what you could have done with this had you had a chance to complete it, and, but I've studied it anyway, and he talks about people doing social justice. Let's get organized and have a protest. In other words, most people's idea of social justice is to get organized and demand that somebody else do something. Says No, social justice is getting organized so that you do something. And of course, it must be within the framework of natural law and the magisterium of the church. But you do have to you know, be guided by certain principles or laws and characteristics, as he put it. <coughs> now, the fourth characteristic is eternal vigilance. As Pius XI said, society is, is in a condition of radical instability. It's always changing, which means our institutions are always changing, which means in turn that we have to keep an eye on them. It's not like we can just set the timer and say, okay, we have now achieved a perfect institution. As I said, in the preamble of the constitution it says to form a more perfect union, with the implication being that we're going to have to keep on perfecting, always striving for perfection, yet always at the same time knowing we will never reach it, but that does not release us from the obligation of doing it, of working toward it. So that eternal vigilance is necessary. And I think, um, and I can't remember which founding father said it, but it was eternal vigilance is the price of freedom or something like that, which applies to all forms of social justice. Now, number five, and this was another very difficult one for people who liked the grand gesture. Now, I will do this even though I know I'm going to fail because the fifth characteristic of social justice is effectiveness. You're not allowed to do something just for show. If you think it's not going to work, don't do it. It must be effective. As I said, the impossible dream, you know, from Man of La Mancha, sounds great for an individual and sometimes it may be necessary but that is not social justice and it's not social virtue don quixote was the supreme individualist in fact he was such an individualist that it drove him crazy i mean when you're reading stories of knight errantry this quintessential individualists yeah if you take that as your your ideal you're going to go a little nuts which Sometimes it may be a very fine thing to be, especially in our society, but it's still not social justice. The sixth characteristic of social justice is you can't take it or leave it alone. As I said, we are by nature political animals, and we are individually responsible to participate and organize with others if we see something needs repair. We need to reform society. We can't just go off on, you know, on the mountaintop or the city on the hill, or found our own community and leave the rest of society behind. We are not to hide our light under a bushel. Now, I realize that there are a number of people today who say that, you know, we Catholics should retreat to the catacombs. Uh, we should, uh, what was it, something called the Benedict Option? I can understand somebody like Rod Dreyer's. Frustration. But it isn't the answer. The answer is we are to go out and be a light unto the nations. We are not to hide and go off by ourselves. And it may seem impossible at the moment, but that's the whole point of social justice. Nothing is impossible if you approach it the right way and are geared toward effectiveness. So you have to keep all these laws and characteristics in mind. It may seem impossible. But as Father Faris said, you're not to do anything. It's not some, Social justice is not something that you add on to what you're doing. It's how you do what you're doing in a different way. You improve how you're doing what you're doing. It's not something you do in addition to something. Someone who says, oh, it's, today is the day we go out and do social justice. Well, you should be doing social justice every day in the way you do what you do because social justice and individual justice always work in tandem. They're they're together, they're not two different things. As I said, social justice does not substitute for or replace individual justice. It complements it, it enables it. They go together, it's not either or. It's like faith and reason or intellect and will. You cannot separate these things, even though that's what people seem to wanna do today. Everybody wants to compartmentalize everything today. It's like, I'll go to church on Sunday, at least if you're allowed to, and I'll be a good Catholic there, but then when I'm out in the real world, I'll do this. You know, This is what Chesterton was talking about, the double mind of man. Uh, I'll use one set of principles for reason and the other set of principles for faith. No, no. Same set of principles. Operate in different ways, but Again, the first principle of reason, that which is true is as true and is true in the same way as everything else that is true. You can't just say that there's different levels of consciousness and thus truth changes at different levels. That was E.F. Schumacher in his book uh, uh, Guide for the Perplexed, the title he stole from Moses Maimonides. Relativism, moral positivism, nihilism, these are not viable or acceptable to anyone who is within a socially just or even an individually just framework. They simply cannot work because we get back into the nature of the human person, both individual, social, political, and they have to work together. You cannot separate them. Now, this brings up the problem. How do you bring them together? How do you make them effective? That effectiveness issue on so that that on the characteristics of social justice is a big one. And it's the biggest stumbling block we have Uh, All things considered. says So how do you make acts of social justice effective? And the answer is with power. So that we speak of empowering people. Now, how do you do that? Now, purely by coincidence. Exactly a hundred years ago, this is 2020, and Daniel Webster said this in 1820 during the debates over the constitutional, in the constitutional, in the, excuse me, in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention of 1820. I'm trying to say that three times fast. So, as he said, power naturally and necessarily follows property. So how are you going to empower people so that they get control over their own lives and can become, you know, full and active participants in the common good and become virtuous? Owning property. <coughs> Specifically, owning capital, productive wealth. And that's why in Rerum Novarum, Leo XIII said, the law, therefore, should favor ownership and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. So if you wanna get, get sloganistic, say power to people, owner be owned. I have had, I have seen where some people trying to collectivize that passage in Rerum Navaram will say, oh, as many as possible of the workers. No, of people, because power follows property. We must empower every child, every woman, every man so that they can become virtuous. If you're saying that only workers can own or only the state can own, what you just said is that only workers or only the state can have power and only workers and only the state can become virtuous. So the the rest of us are natural slaves. I mean, come on. I mean, this is in fact why uh, the ancient Romans If you read the parable of the talents correctly, you'll see that, you know, modern translations do a great disservice because what the master did was call in three slaves and assign them property to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, another one talent. And people today say, slaves? Yes. A Roman master's obligation even though most of them didn't bother to do it, was to prepare his slaves to enter society, to become his fellow citizens, to become full human beings. And what's the best way to do that? Give them management of property. And the Romans even had a word in Roman law, peculium. You would assign a peculium to a slave. The slave didn't own it. Slaves have no rights. A slave can't own anything. But he could act as if he owned it. And if he did a good job with it, what frequently happened was the master would free the slave and hand over the entire peculium to him. Say, you're now not only a free man and my equal, you're rich. And this is what the master in the parable of the talents did, if you look at it. Calls in three slaves, assigns them, you know, some, you know, gives them a, a bunch of money. A talent was an immense amount of money. Goes on a journey, comes back. Asked for an accounting. The first two did a great job. And he, if you read the parable carefully, what the guy did was free his slaves and give them the money. In other words, you are now my equal. Come share your master's joy. Well, you're now my equal. Congratulations. To so the guy who didn't take advantage of it, he said, get out of my sight. You're, you're worthless. You're, you ought to be a slave. You didn't take advantage of the opportunity you were given. Of course, that is the most superficial reading of the parable. There's, of course, different levels of it. Uh, But it also ties in with why we should be a light unto the nations. We must do our best with what we're given so that when we're called to an accounting for it, we can say, we became virtuous. We did our best. Maybe we didn't do very good, but we did our best, or at least adequately. so, the problem there, however, is how do people become owners? We can't all have rich masters who are going to give us a grant of cash to do something with. But, uh, and this is the problem with what it's, you know, the application of the principle in the encyclicals, because what it says is pay people more. There's a problem with that in economic terms and in finance terms. Raising wages for workers without a corresponding increase in productiveness raises prices for everyone. It increases the cost of production, and making every and it makes everyone worse off than before. It's like you have ten people working, but there's a hundred people, you know, whom the workers support. So, if they get an increase in wages but don't increase but don't produce any more, the price of everything they produce goes up, not just for them, for everybody. This is why, uh, you'll find a constant complaint of people who, uh, you know, wage workers who say, you know, my father could support an entire family of 10 kids on one paycheck. We can't even support our one kid on 10 paychecks. Well, because prices keep going up because people are getting paid more for what they don't produce. And in Keynesian economics, there's a real weird rationale for that, but we won't get into it. It's called forced savings, which basically steals from workers to give to the producers who don't need it. But even giving even giving the fact that the popes did not give a good mechanism for acquiring ownership takes nothing away from the fact that we they people do need to become owners, and not just workers, everyone so that the principles of social justice when understood clearly distinguish i boy did i read that wrong this is what happens when you read your own notes says <laughs> so the principles of social justice i on the side i saw a television show one one once that the actress read the line so badly that it didn't make any sense at all, but they kept it in because I don't think that the editor understood what the line was supposed to be <laughs> It was somebody was playing drums, and the the, the character playing the grand they would give him the drums said, "I'm going to go up and talk to my little buddy Rich." Well, if you didn't know that Buddy Rich was a drummer, and what the line was supposed to be was, "I'm going to go up and talk to my little buddy Rich." <laughs> okay complete digression, you can edit that one out if you want. Anyway, the principles of social justice, when understood, clearly distinguish Catholic social teaching from socialism and capitalism. Now, the fact is that from Father Faree's point of view, and without considering, you know, the actual mechanism by means of which people can become owners, so that they can make their acts of social justice effective, was that the impossible was now possible. We can access the common good directly by getting organized and acting directly on the institutions of the common good. We can reform society without waiting for the great man or the state or pure chance to do it for us. We don't have to accept unjust social conditions. That's the whole point of social justice. And my father Ferri said, said, uh, you know, that, everything, nothing is impossible in social justice terms. So he he concluded his pamphlet Introduction to Social Justice with problems that were agonizing in the past and were simply dodged even by serious and virtuous people can now be solved with ease by any school child. Well, maybe not by any school child, but anyone who is trained in the principles of social justice. And the completed doctrine of social justice places in our hands instruments of such power as to be inconceivable to former generations. I mean, I realize that Father Free was getting pretty cosmic with this, but it is a pretty cosmic thing. And this is why socialism and modernism by going off on a tangent and redefining social justice to mean, you know, a replacement for individual justice and charity did A bad thing. I'm I'm being real mild with that. Because by diverting the whole issue of social justice into trying to create the kingdom of God on earth, instead of trying to prepare people for the reign of Christ the King, it was not only a detour, it was reversing and going in the wrong direction. But Father Free continues, he says, But let us be clear about what is new and what is old. None of the elements of this theory are new. Institutions and institutional action, the idea of the common good, the relationship of individual to common good, all these things are as old as the human race itself. When all that is admitted, however, there is still something tremendously new and tremendously important in this work of Pope Pius XI. The power that we have now to change any institution of life, the grip that we have on the social order as a whole was always there, but we did not know it and we did not know how to use it. And as I said, this is a very difficult presentation and it may require, I hate to do this to people, may require a couple of viewings really to grasp and to go over. It may even help if you take notes, which of course I hated to do in school, but you have to anyway. And I think it would be very good to go get the free downloadable copy of Introduction to Social Justice and give it a read through. Once or twice. It's not that hard. And there's even little questions at the back that you can, you can test yourself on. So, but Father Free said, you know, we, the, he said, we didn't know how to do this before, but now we know. And that is the difference. And which is a good way to conclude, since that's the way he concluded his pamphlet. And but I will, however, stick in another free plug for the books that you can get for free after, of course, you visit the Census Fidelium store, yeah. so that you can you know get one of the coffee mugs and uh, <laughs> yeah. coffee balls. Uh, yeah, important things. <laughs> uh, but the free books that you want to be interested in the the one you should get is Introduction to Social Justice, the pamphlet. Uh, it's under Resources on the menu bar. It's Free ebooks, is the second item down. And you'll see, I think it's kind of a, an icky yellow cover. Uh, on, the, on my computer, it shows up on the left. And the, the icky green Act of Social Justice uh, free download is on the right. Be cautious about the act of social justice. As I said, it was a doctoral thesis written in the 1940s. And it is uh, it assumes a level of knowledge of philosophy, of Latin, and even of Greek that a lot of people aren't going to have today. But if you feel up to it, go ahead. Uh, but sure, But most certainly read Introduction to Social Justice, the pamphlet. Uh, And next week, I hope we'll get into, you know, I'm with the Center for Economic and Social Justice. Next week, we'll look at economic justice, in other words, try to fill out, you know, fill in the, not the flaw, but the omission in, you know, papal teachings on, on, on social justice. Because the mechanism they gave by means of which people can become owners of capital, was clearly inadequate. And we we could go on for hours as to why, but we won't. Well, we'll go into something slightly different next week on economic justice. And hopefully you'll be able to see me and not look like I'm in a bat cave. (laughs) Well, I can't see people anyways. (laughs) Michael, appreciate it. Okay, thanks.